Welcome to the fourth and final session of the fasting practice. Fasting has been an important practice for me in my discipleship to Jesus. It's one of the key ways my heart, body, and mind come into alignment with God's heart. Over the last decade, I've fasted for several reasons, once in response to grief of the genocide in Rwanda, another time to still the cacophony in my own spirit, and another to pray for someone or even to listen more closely. Fasting never gets old, mainly because it's such a stark interruption. Maybe because I like food so much or my days are often broken apart by times of eating, it has an uncanny ability to help me notice and to be with Jesus. So far, we've covered three of the four reasons for fasting. To offer ourselves to Jesus, to grow in holiness, and to amplify our prayers. Next up is fasting to stand with the poor. There's a lot of ground to cover, but first, we're going to circle up in triads to reflect. Maybe you're three weeks into the practice and you don't feel like you're experiencing the fruit of it yet. That's okay. That's a part of the journey that we want you to talk about in your triad. Here's a few questions to discuss. Number one. Did you sense God's voice this last week in any way? Number two, what's one thing you were specifically praying for? And number three, how are you feeling three weeks into this new practice? Take a few minutes to discuss. Sarah is a new mother in L.A., but the father just abandoned her and the baby. She makes barely enough to survive in the city. One week, she paid her utilities but had no money left to buy groceries. Her fridge was empty and her cupboards bare. She's also a new Christian, and in her faltering way, she prayed to God for help and felt a strange peace come over her. A few hours later, she opened the front door of her apartment and there, on the stoop, were three bags of groceries and an envelope with $200. It was anonymous, but she strongly suspects it's from someone at her church just down the road. The Nagoy family are refugees from the Congo. They were forced to leave their homeland due to rising violence and granted asylum in the United States. But when they landed at the Portland airport, all of their possessions for a family of six were in one plastic garbage bag. They did not speak English, understand the culture, or know how to navigate the complex world of American social services. They were dropped off at a Spartan apartment and left to fend for themselves. But a few hours later, there was a knock at the door, and a community group from a local church was there, carrying bags of groceries and home supplies and offering long-term friendship. Lorenzo was a young professional in Minneapolis. Every day, he sees the growing inequality in the city and the specter of homelessness, not to mention the inequality around the world. But what can one person do in the face of so much pain and suffering? Lorenzo is an apprentice of Jesus, and every Friday, he goes without food until sundown. Each week, he takes the money he would have spent on breakfast and lunch and donates it to his local food bank. It's not much, but it's something. I tell you about Sarah and the Nagoys and Lorenzo because stories move us more than statistics, but the statistics are still haunting. 
Around 2 billion people in the world live in poverty. Around 10% of the global population, or 700 million people, live in extreme poverty on less than $2 a day. Here in my country of America, the extreme poverty rate is even higher at 11.6 or nearly 40 million people. And most of them are children. Nearly 22,000 children die daily due to poverty. Poverty is directly tied to issues of racial injustice. In America, the highest poverty rate is among Native Americans, followed by the black community, undoubtedly tied to our nation's tragic history. And yet, the average family of four in the U.S. spends $1,500 a year on food they throw out. 40% of food in America is thrown out. Estimates range from 80 to 160 billion pounds of food waste per year. So, millions of men, women, and children are hungry, and millions more have so much food they don't even know what to do with it. Is there a practice from the way of Jesus to stand in the face of all this disparity? Yes, it's the practice of fasting. Over the last three sessions, we've explored the power of fasting for personal transformation. Now we're ready to shift from the internal to the external, to the power of fasting for community transformation. Throughout church history, it's one of the main practices that followers of Jesus have adopted to move toward the hungry and the poor and those on the margins. Now we come to our fourth and final reason behind fasting. Over the last few sessions, we said that fasting is a practice, one, to offer ourselves to Jesus, two, to grow in holiness, and three, to amplify our prayers. Up next is to stand with the poor. This is one aspect of fasting that may be new to you. You may not think of fasting as a vehicle for the biblical vision of justice, but in the imagination of the biblical writers, it is. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 is one of the most essential passages in all of Scripture on fasting. Let's take a few minutes and work through the text line by line. Chapter 58, verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Meaning, the people are asking Isaiah, we are fasting, but it doesn't seem to be working. Why is God not hearing our prayer? Listen to God's reply, verse 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Meaning, Fasting is not only to offer ourselves to God and to grow in holiness and to amplify our prayers. There is more to it. Keep reading. Verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. 
Notice the motivation for this type of fasting is to fight injustice, to free people from oppression, to share your food with the hungry, to provide shelter for refugees, immigrants, and those with no home, to clothe the naked, to meet the practical needs of people all around you. If you practice this kind of fasting, listen to what will happen. Verse 8, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. This is a whole other dimension to fasting than the previous three sessions that has less to do with us and more to do with others, in particular with the poor. In his commentary on Isaiah 58, St. Augustine said this, Break your bread for those who are hungry, said Isaiah. Do not believe that fasting suffices. Fasting chastises you, but it does not refresh the other. Do you wish your prayer to reach God? Give it two wings, fasting and almsgiving. I love his word picture. Prayer is like a bird. If you want it to fly to heaven, give it two wings, fasting and almsgiving which is a word that was used by Jesus and the first Christians that can also be translated works of mercy. It's a combination of what today we would call generosity, service, and justice. You see, in the biblical imagination, almsgiving is just as tied to fasting as prayer. In the same way that it's hard to imagine fasting without praying, it's theoretically possible, but it's kind of missing the whole point. To the biblical mind, it's just as illogical to practice fasting without generosity, service, and justice. Followers of Jesus have been practicing this type of fasting for thousands of years. The shepherd of Hermas, an early Christian writing dating to the early 2nd century that was actually considered for canonization in the New Testament, has this instruction for the widespread practice of fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. Estimate the cost of the food you would have eaten on that day and give that amount to a widow or orphan or someone in need. Be humble in this way, that the one who receives something because of your humility may fill his soul and pray to the Lord for you. Notice there's no savior complex here. The well-off are just as in need of prayer as the poor. St. Gregory of Nyssa, a church father from the 4th century in Cappadocia in the east, said of fasting, give to the hungry what you deny your own appetite. Caesarius of Arles in France in the 6th century said, let us fast in such a way that we lavish our lunches upon the poor, so that we may not store up in our purses what we intended to eat, but rather in the stomachs of the poor. What all these great ones of the way are saying in chorus is, we can't separate our relationship with God from our relationship with our neighbor. Fasting is a way to love God and love our neighbor at the same time. This type of fasting is a way to do three things. First, to stand in solidarity with the hungry. Regularly going without food by choice can put us emotionally in touch with the millions of people around the world and in our own countries and cities who regularly go without food not by choice. This denial of your stomach does something to your heart. 
you begin to feel the compassion of God. You begin to see the poor not as a stranger or even as an object of your pity, but as a brother or sister. I know several families who care deeply about raising kids whose hearts have not been warped by the materialism of Western culture. These families do a rice and beans night once a week, eating what most people around the world eat every day as an act of intentional spiritual formation. Fasting or even a restricted diet like that can enable us to stand in solidarity with the hungry, but also to share what we have. What we give up in money spent on food can be turned into generosity to the poor. And what we give up in time spent on food, shopping, cooking, eating, cleaning up, can be spent in service of the poor. Dorothy Day, the bohemian intellectual from New York City who became the founder of the Catholic worker movement and kind of a modern-day saint, said this, How shall we have the means to help our brother who is in need? We can do without those unnecessary things which become habits. Cigarettes, liquor, coffee, tea, candy, sodas, soft drinks, and those foods at meals which only titillate the palate. We all have these habits, the youngest and the oldest, and we have to die to ourselves in order to live. We have to put off the old man and put on Christ. There's a long-standing tradition in the Catholic Church of fasting on Fridays and serving that day in a food pantry or soup kitchen or at a local nonprofit. This is one way to not just talk about justice, but to do justice. There is so much slacktivism, as it's come to be called, in the digital age. Much of what people call justice is just ranting on social media. But in a biblical theology of justice, talk is cheap. The call is to act in love. Think of 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Again, what can one person or even one church do in the face of all the evil and injustice of the world? Well, we can do this. We can fast and free up our resources and share with those in need. This could literally be as simple as giving the 10 or $20 you would have spent on breakfast and lunch to your local food bank or your church's food pantry or buying someone groceries and need in your community, or just Venmoing someone to help pay for their medical bills. It's that simple, but it's also powerful. Finally, it can enable us to stand against evil and injustice. At a social level, Gandhi made famous the hunger strike and his nonviolent resistance to the British Empire, as did Oscar Romero, the Christian intellectual and martyr from El Salvador. Fasting can be a loving, nonviolent way to protest systemic injustice. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight writes this, Food joins humans to other humans because we share meals together. Whenever we give up food intentionally, we refrain from relationships. When a group protests by fasting, they both negate one relationship with the haves and they affirm another relationship with the have-nots. And since the structures of power always have sufficient food, 
Fasting is not only refusing relationship, but it's also protesting the power structures that exist. Fasting is a way for the well-fed to voluntarily align with the hungry, as Jesus himself did for us. But at a spiritual level, it's not just to stand against the systems and structures of evil and injustice in politics or society as a whole, but against what the New Testament calls the principalities and powers behind them, the demonic energies animating the power structures of the world. To fight this evil, we must turn to prayer. As St. Gregory the Great once said, it is impossible to engage in spiritual conflict without the previous subjugation of the appetite. He, like most of the saints, saw fasting as a prerequisite to any kind of prayer for breakthrough. There's a long-running history in the church of fasting to prepare for spiritual conflict. In deliverance ministry, or what Catholics call exorcism, fasting beforehand is pretty much mandatory to purge and purify your soul of sin and grow in power and authority in the Spirit to tear down strongholds in the language of the New Testament. The fast Isaiah has in mind is one where we stand in solidarity with the hungry, we share our resources, and we stand against evil and injustice. This last type of fasting will have an effect not just on the poor, but on you and me and on the church as a whole. Remember Jesus' vision of what the church is meant to be, a new kind of family of peace and justice and love. In the same way that in a healthy family, there is no way that anyone would ever go without food or shelter as long as there are resources in the family as a whole. So too, in a healthy church family, there's no way that anyone would ever go without food or shelter or access to the basic necessities of life. This is part of the gospel. You have been adopted, not just into relationship with God the Father, but into his family. You have brothers and sisters. And while all families fall short of the ideal, fasting is one of the best practices we have to co-create a new family with Jesus, where it can be said, as it was said of the early church, there is no needy person among them. Now we come to the end of our practice. We've done our best over the last four sessions to lay out a vision of fasting as one of the most powerful and essential of all the practices of Jesus. It has the potential to transform our relationship to Jesus, to awaken a hunger within and draw us into deeper union with him, to our body, to heal our relationship to food, to pleasure, to starve our flesh and feed our spirit, to develop self-control and self-discipline, to God in prayer, to sharpen our ability to hear God's voice as well as give power to our prayers to break through walls to God, and to the poor, to the hungry, to those in need, to form a new community of justice and righteousness. Fasting can do all this and more. And our hope is not just that you practice fasting a few times and then move on with your life, but that you integrate fasting into your rule of life or your overall lifestyle, as most followers of Jesus have done until recent history. If you were to study a community of disciples of Jesus in, say, 250 AD or 1250 AD, and most anywhere in between, 
you would notice the same basic pattern. They ate very modestly most days. They fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays until sundown, as well as on holy days in the church calendar. And they feasted every Sabbath and on special occasions. This pattern, eating, fasting, and feasting, is a long-standing rhythm of life for followers of Jesus. It's no secret we Americans prefer feasting to fasting, yet the two live in a reciprocal relationship. As Marva J. Dawn put it in her writing on feasting and the Sabbath, Americans do not know how to feast because they do not know how to fast, especially if we fast on behalf of those who don't have enough and share our plenty with them, our feasting will be much more meaningful. The invitation of the Church of Jesus down through history is to join in this ancient rhythm to eat, to fast, and to feast. But let us never forget, fasting is temporary. Feasting is eternal. The story of Scripture begins with a fast. The Church Fathers all point out that one of the first commands in Scripture in Genesis 3 is to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Scripture ends with a feast in Revelation where all God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gather together around the table with Jesus himself. No more fasting, no more hunger, no more solidarity with the poor because there are no more poor. When we feast, we act out an advanced sign of that glorious future. And when we fast, we pray with our bodies for Jesus to drag that future into the present. We pray in the words of the early church, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So, may you feast and may you fast and may we together hasten Jesus' return to make all things new. Now we've come to our last conversation as a community. Let's make it one of our best. Here are a few questions to guide your time. Number one, we're almost a month in. What effects do you see this practice is having on you, both your body and your soul? Number two, are you thinking of continuing this practice? If so, in what way? And number three, do we know any practical needs that we could meet together as a community? This could be someone in your neighborhood or church or right there in your community to your right and left. You may want to ask if anyone in the room has any practical needs. Hi, my name is Quantrell, and I see fasting as a vision to stand in solidarity with the Lord's heart for His people. In the book of Isaiah, he talks about God's chosen fast, uh, and His chosen fast is to break the chains of oppression and bondage, um, to do justice and feed the hungry, liberate the poor and fasting uh, from 
what it looks like in Isaiah uh, is more than just being hungry. Um, it's more than one way of encountering God with your body. It seems from that passage that fasting not only looks like going without food, but also doing justice um, in the community, in the city, in response to different events that happen. Um, you see that all throughout the scriptures, different events will come up and a whole nation will be called to fast and pray in response to that thing. And I think fasting is a way to stand in solidarity with God's heart and God's vision um, for a nation, for a people, but also for the poor, for the marginalized, for the powerless. We hope you've experienced a deeper relationship with God as you've begun to integrate the fasting practice into your life. Now, as we wrap up session four, we've got one last exercise to try. Our last week's exercise is similar to the previous three weeks, but with one simple addition. It's to fast for one full day until sundown, but then to give the money you would have spent on food to the poor. Pick a day this coming week to fast, and if possible, fast together as a community. Fast until sundown that day, then eat a simple meal. During your day of fasting, focus your heart on the fourth reason for fasting, to stand with the poor or hungry. So as you feel hungry, think of the billions of people who feel this way every day and pray for them. But the addition to this week's practice is to share whatever money you would have spent on breakfast and lunch that day with the poor and hungry. You could donate to a food bank or your church's food pantry or a local nonprofit. You could buy groceries for someone you know in need or give the money directly to help someone pay their bills. Whatever you sense the Spirit is stirring in your heart. It might help to pray and discern the best use of your resources. Now remember, fasting is a way to love God and love our neighbor at the same time. Though this is our final week, there's still a practice reflection in your companion guide if you'd like to fill it out and get the most out of this last week's practice. This week's REACH exercise is to not only share the money you would have spent on food with the poor, but to find a place to serve those in need in your community or city. This could be volunteering with your church or for a local nonprofit or food pantry or soup kitchen or at your local rescue mission. Or you could know someone in your church or neighborhood in need of a helping hand and offer to come over and help out. Don't make a big deal out of it. Just offer your time in love and service. As you do, quietly ask God to transform your heart. For a recommended reading, we're finishing God's Chosen Fast by Arthur Wallace. And we're listening to the final episode of the Rule of Life Season 3 podcast on fasting by Practicing the Way. Also in your guide, there's a keep going section where more recommended reading if you want to continue learning about fasting, as well as a few more exercises you can try out, like fasting on a solitude retreat and more. To end, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us, but this is just the beginning. Our hope is that you integrate this discipline into your rule of life, that you continue to practice fasting and in the months and years to come, find more and more joy in this aspect of your life with God. To close, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ.